Hi, I'm Richard Bond, and I am the producer and director of the Tupac Assassination movies. Over the last 12 years, I have learned a lot about Tupac, and I'd like to share with you what I know. Well, good morning, everybody. It's RJ Bond here with What I Know, and this is December, first week of 2019, and we are in the thick of it. Everybody's shopping and carrying on and doing all the things that they're doing to get ready for the holiday. And it's raining here, so you know people are sitting in their car doing traffic. And, uh, of course, that's why we do the podcast, and we keep them short, because that way we don't have to worry about long, drawn-out conversations and people having to stop after they've been driving for a half hour, 45 minutes, and go, gee, I wonder really how that ended. You know, it's a, that's a frustrating experience, and I don't think that we need that. So we try to keep these shows short, sweet, to the point, on a topic, and then we're done. So uh, greetings again. This is R.J. Bond. Many of you know me as the director of the Assassination Projects, Tupac Assassination, Battle for Content being the last one that came out, but we had some really good ones before. And a lot of you have asked me, you know, what, which one of the Battle for Content movies or of all the projects that you've done, do you like the best? Which one do you think is the one that's the, your favorite or, you know, one that's closest to your heart? And, you know, I, I had to think about that because in a way it's kind of like, you know, asking you what, which child of yours is your favorite, right? You know, I, I like them all for different reasons. And I think a lot of them have different parts to them that are, you know, better than others uh you know i think that probably the most professional or the most industry standard documentary that we did was of course battle for content now saying that you know i'm not sure that battle for content is is my favorite i mean it's up there but i think i have to say that it's a tie for my favorite for different reasons um the I think my all-time favorite is Tupac Assassination 2, Reckoning. And that was actually renamed uh, Tupac, uh, Tupac uh, Aftermath. It was renamed when we changed distributors. And, uh, you know, Part 2 never really got its due. And maybe that's why I'm, you know, kind of favorable to it a little bit. Um, part 2 was... Uh, taken on by a distributor called Mill Creek. And I got to take you back a little bit into the days before iTunes and the days before YouTube and the days before podcasts and, you know, back, and this is 2009. So we're talking 10 years ago and things weren't near like they are now where anybody who has a voice can jump on and do a podcast or, you know, they have all these platforms that help you get videos distributed. And if you don't want to do any of those, well, the heck with it. You just put it on YouTube. Um, but it wasn't like that. In 2009, 2007, when part one and part two came out uh, of Tupac assassination movies, uh, you had to work hard uh, to try to get a distributor. It was very, very difficult to try to do that. Anyway, we got a hold of a distributor by the name of Mill Creek uh, Distribution, a fellow by the name of Jeff Hain. Quick shout out to Jeff. He's a good dude. And part two, according to the deal that we had put together with Mill Creek, was that part two was going to be released as a single, just like part one was, and that later on we would do a two-box set with part one and part two. And we went ahead and we signed the deal, and our you know agent, John Scheinberg, he got paid, and, and uh, they took the uh, 
videos off the masters delivered the masters to them and they said okay we're ready to go and they're putting them out and so i'm expecting to see a, a single for part two and it just instead i got this box set that had part one and part two you've seen it it's the brown cover it has probably one of the better artwork pieces i think that we've had on our on our videos uh but um it was uh, um, a two-boxed set, uh, very cheaply made and very cheaply put out to Walmart. I think it started in the $5 bargain bin. And that was, you kind of got to like hold your breath on things like that because, yeah, it's $5. And at those times, DVDs were going for, you know, $12 to $14 new. And you kind of hold your breath about it and you say, you know, geez, um, the... Five dollars, man. That's crazy because by the time it's all said and done, we're lucky if we make 50 cents a DVD off of it. But if, or a dollar, let's say a dollar. But if you go to Walmart and you say, I got a five dollar DVD and Walmart's always looking for bargain deals. You know that. And uh, Walmart says, wow, that's a great deal. I'll tell you what, we'll buy a hundred thousand of them. hundred thousand copies. Well, suddenly now that dollar per copy doesn't seem like such a bad deal, does it? You know, of course, we'd all like to make millions off of it, but hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars are a good thing. But getting back to Mill Creek, Mill Creek came out and they released this $5 du deluxe DVD set. Well, fantastic deal for the uh, for the fans, that's for sure. Um, and Walmart did not order the volume that Mill Creek thought that they would order. No fault of Mill Creek. It's just the decision Walmart makes and, and Target and these other vendors that buy these things. And again, this was before the days of Amazon. These are before the days of Netflix, before the days of on-demand video. These were, it, this was it. You had an outlet, you went to those stores, and if you didn't get in those stores, you weren't selling your DVD. You put it on your website and try, but good luck. So an order of 25,000 copies of a movie is generally a pretty good thing. And in part one, we actually had some good traffic that way. But anyway, back to the two set. They made this two set box set. I watched it, got a copy of it and watched. The transfer was just really bad and not to the standard that even we put out during part one. Uh, the, the transfer part one was bad. The transfer part two was bad. And that's actually what led to the 2013 re-edits of the movie. Uh, when we renamed him Aftermath and, and Conspiracy, Tupac Conspiracy and Tupac Aftermath. If you get those, those are the um, Cinedime or new video uh, cuts of the movie. 2013 cut. You'll see them. They're out there on Walmart Target. I actually think those are the best versions of the movies. I actually did go in and do some re-editing. People don't know that. They think that, oh, I just screwed around with it um, and just re put it out because of formatting, but I actually did go in and actually re-edit the movies. So if you get a chance to, those are the good ones. Anyway, so part two was supposed to be a single, never came out as a single. So part two really never got its due. Um, you know, it was a, there was just a lot of hassles with it. The transfer wasn't very good. I mean, it was just a, it was a mess and it was never released as a single. So I never really thought that it got its due, but I think it's actually the emotional core of the entire series. It really talks about the people that were the closest to Tupac, 
We had Tupac talking on it himself. Tracy Robinson was on there. Leila Steinberg was on there. Gloria Cox was on there. You know, we had people that were really impacted by what happened to Tupac talking about the aftermath, really talking about what happened after the shooting, how things were, and then, of course, you know, how they felt about it and really what the emotional toll it was that was the uh, results of all that. So I think for that reason, part two is probably my favorite of the three. Uh, the other one that runs a second close and an honorary mention is a movie that never came out. It never was released. It was done. Uh, and probably, and there's a few people that have peeped it, that have looked at it and seen it, and they can speak up in the comments for it. And you know, Maybe one day I'll just have a viewing party and just put it out there. Um, but the movie was called Static. And it was a, an effort that I think is probably my most creative work in the Tupac space, if you will. Um, it was commissioned. I didn't own the movie at the time and, and didn't uh, do much to um, source a lot of the material. This wasn't like a project that I started off with. The project was kind of brought to me and my job was to direct and edit from a bunch of source material that was already collected and the people that collected the source material. And by the way, this was a, a documentary about digital underground and about the creation and formation of digital underground with Tupac and how that all started in, in the early years of Tupac, if you will. Not to be confused with Tupac, the early years, the Atrium Gregory project that I also worked on, which also hasn't been released, but the this was a, a project that was created for one of the other alleged founding members of Digital Underground, not Shock G. And Shock G is my dear friend and good all-around dude. This was not a Shock G sanctioned project. And anybody who knows Digital Underground knows if Shock G's not involved and Shock G's not at the heart of it, it's not really Digital Underground. Nevertheless, this other person, and by the way, it also wasn't Money B, so let me just get that out there. I like Money B. Money B's a good dude. Um, it wasn't Shock G. It wasn't Money B. It was another one person that was involved with Digital Underground, and they put a movie together, and they wanted to do it, and they had brought some interviews to the table that were really novel. It was some interesting people like Nzazi Namalanya, who was the road manager for Digital Underground during that time. And uh, he had grabbed a couple of other interviews that were either given to him. I, I, I don't know. The, the trouble with the project really became down to the people that claimed that they had ownership of the interviews and the people that claimed that they had material. Uh, they didn't own it. Uh, you know, it was no different than if I just grabbed a bunch of crap off of YouTube and threw it up there and they didn't own it. And they didn't own the music that they were using. And they claimed that they had rights to, you know, put the music on the video. And <coughs> essentially, it was a year of my life editing that that movie um and you know i i loved it because it was really wacky it was kind of like my yellow submarine it was really creative super wacky i had to be really inventive because i had very little to work with in terms of anything original uh and you know the interviews and everything were great but you know really there was more to it visually you know i had to put a story together try to cobble together some images and there wasn't a lot of images there wasn't a lot of tupac footage in it so i had to become very very creative with how we were going to uh work that video that said i, I still think it's got some of the funniest stories regarding tupac and regarding digital underground uh it's got some of the best um uh interviews 
in terms of just real people talking about what was going on with the antics of Digital Underground. And I think that if I had to do a movie about Digital Underground, and I would lo actually love to do that, and Shock and I had talked about that at one time. Uh, I've got some Humpty footage and an interview with Humpty himself, actually, Edward. Um, but we... If I had to do a Digital Underground, I just thought it was as zany and antic as Digital Underground was, so was this movie. And so for that reason, Static gets the honorable mention. Uh, that, I hope one day, I don't know, we'll figure out a way to, to put it out there. I don't know, you know. I know that there have been copies floating around. Maybe you can find it on the black market. I don't know, but, you know, don't, don't be sending me stuff. Hey, can I get a copy of Static? No, 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 no. You know... I sit and look at today's youth, I can't help but see him crying out, then I think in my mind, who's gonna reach, when all they need is love, and somebody cares. They gon' try to reach the thugs on the block and tell me who's gonna reach them, adolescents turning to killers cause nobody would teach them, and the system is full of brothers who had no direction, politicians passing new laws, keep us all in suppression, left us guessing with many crashes, as how to survive, how can we live so peacefully when we Deprived of our lives as younger seeds, now society hates us. Left us abandoned, oh no, this is the way that you made us. So sometimes searching for answers in the Muslim religion, John 14 and 16, for the way that you live in vice lords, gates and disciples, lighting kings and stones. If you're sick of the life you live, then turn to Christ on the throne. Who's gonna reach you? Too many of us hurt now here. Lord, searching for answers. Only hope is you. So I get down on my knees, Lord. And I pray So somebody reach my people Then I wonder who's the same I'm seeing my people struggle better surviving Little shorty selling crack trapped in this life of crime Sisters drinking prostituting trying to support a habit Brothers dying over madness and some sisters are tragic It is sad cause you got a church on every city block When when you look at conditions it leaves you in the shock And why they stuck in religion while wow, he's dead he dying So many babies were murdered to let my mothers cry Got me shedding tears as we prepare for one in the middle weeks while in our own communities, we search a hope for peace. But in reality, it seems that it never changed. So I pray to God to release us and free us from the pain. Did we've endured over the years, we're back in slavery. Lord knows how it affects our community. Left us blind, maybe your time would change. But now we're searching for a better way, a better way. Steady searching, Lord. So I'm a homie shed tears. Why can't nobody Sort of like conspiracy that's been working for years to keep us all in poverty. He 
next generation Feeling the pain, the custom must be broken Throughout the past, we've been chained for years Freedom is what we're hoping And only you can wipe our crying tears The Lord, I'm praying for the youth Cause I've been called to reach my dying peers And let them know that that's a better way Far from this life we live Although it's hard, it's a brighter day As you know, I got to put a little music in there from time to time and uh, not to put my radio voice on, but uh, that was uh, LG Wise uh, from music that was given to us to use for part two, uh, Tupac Assassination, which I jumped about was uh, one of my favorites, if not my very favorite of all the movies that projects that I've worked on. So just had a lot going for it. And I think it's really underestimated. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. Uh, but again, LG Wise, and no, <clears throat> I'm not trying to fool anybody into thinking that that's Pac singing. That's not Pac singing at all. And that person definitely was what they would call a biter. I guess that's the word that they use where they talk about somebody who tries to sound like Tupac. But you know what? The, the, the bottom line was Tupac had an enjoyable sound. He had an enjoyable cadence to his rhymes and, and his rap. I like it, and if somebody else wants to come along and they like the game or, you know, or somebody else wants to come along and sound like Tupac or whatever, you know what, I'm okay with it. Uh, I like it because the things that I liked about Tupac are the same way. I mean, you know, you think about classical music and you think about how, you know, Tchaikovsky wrote something hundreds of years ago and there's been 10,000 orchestras that have played Tchaikovsky, that have played Brahms, Beethoven. They play it, you know. I, you don't hear them going, "Oh well, you know that that orchestra's never as good as the one that recorded it in 1600 or the ones that recorded it in 1922." That this is nowhere as good as that, and they're just ripping off. Oh, come on, this is stupid. Uh, so you know, if you enjoy it, you enjoy it. That's it. That's what I feel about music. Music is meant to be enjoyed, and if somebody wants to honor Tupac and sound like Tupac, you know what? Damn it, let them do it. What is, you know, this is a term in the game called dry snitching. Uh. Whereas you're giving up a little bit too much information right now that's too real to the truth. Dry snitching. Dry snitching. Dry snitching. Dry snitching. Dry snitching. Dry snitching. So we have a lot of new stuff coming in, you know, everyday stuff that comes in. And I did a live show uh, not too long ago. It was last week, in fact. And, you know, I, I want to play a bit of it for you because I think it was important. And why repeat myself if I've already said it, right? So here's a clip from the live show last week where I do a little bit of talking about some people that are basically, for lack of a better term, sitting on information that, that they should be putting out and, you know, discussing kind of the ethics of all that. Because after we do that, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about one of the people there and actually play some of the stuff that they said. Let's see. Anything to do with Reggie and Kading tried to make Russell look crazy, but they have nothing on Gene Deal and Phil Carson. Yeezy, you're 100% right. No, they, they, they don't. Uh, again, it's uh, uh, everybody's kind of gone to their mutual corners at this point. And, uh, you know, their their position is that Phil Carson 
uh, isn't really saying anything, uh, uh, anything new, and that he basically just cloned Russell Poole's stuff. Well, that's where he started, and this uh, this dude, dude Kenneth McLean or whatever the hell his name is, there, you know, finally got his voice. Uh, he's been wanting for years to to be a voice on the subject and be a Tupac expert, if you will. And, you know, he's always trying to, you know, muscle in where he can. And I think he finally got a voice. He's on one of the channels blathering on and on about what what he thinks, you know, third hand knowledge about stuff and what he's read in books and everything else. And uh, has he ever talked to a single person that's actually been involved in anything? No, never interviewed a person face to face who actually knew Tupac. Maybe he interviewed Reggie. But other than that, he hasn't interviewed a single person who knew Tupac. He's just another another voice in the wilderness. Anyway, this this guy is uh, saying that you know Phil Carson knows nothing other than what uh, he what Russell Poole put out. But what you got to understand about Phil Carson is it's a lot different. Phil Carson with the FBI, and he made it very clear in the interviews that he was doing that he had to go and get all the clearances from his superiors in terms of the Biggie investigation, he had to get permission to even work on it. If they wanted to shit on it, and he went all the way up to Bob Mueller with it. If he, if, if they wanted to shit on it and they wanted to stop the investigation, he had nothing new to offer and had no new evidence or no new theories to offer with the FBI, they would have shut the investigation down and not allowed him to do the man hours to do it. But you got to understand, Phil Carson was getting permission to fly across the United States, the FBI was signing travel vouchers for him to fly all over the place to interview people, to go talk about the Biggie case, to talk about the LAPD corruption, uh, allegedly at the LAPD. He was getting all of this information and he was getting the ability to uh, go and, and, and do these interviews. And the FBI is very judicious with their manpower. I mean, you know, it's like any other company. You, you, work on something, you got to go talk to your boss about it. And you say to your boss, hey, can I go work on this? And your boss says, well, I don't know. What's the value? Okay. And you go and you lay your value proposition out and, and you do that. Same thing with the Psycho Mike stuff. The same thing with taking him out and, and put him out at at, uh, at uh, Amir Muhammad's house. You know, all of this stuff didn't just like, it wasn't a clone of Russell Poole's work. I mean, this dude did his own work did his own math, did his own interviews, had Michael Robinson out there, has his own point of view about it. This was a legitimate FBI investigation. I couldn't even tell you the whole story of even just the Biggie case if you were to do a two-hour documentary, let alone if you brought in all this other stuff. You, you, you couldn't do it in a series of documentaries. Anyways, that being said, um, when I wrote up all this stuff and I, and I presented it to my bosses... Um, they're the, I mean, I don't just, I don't just decide, okay, I want to open up this case and just open it up and start doing it. I mean, I have to have my boss, my boss's bosses, and especially if you're talking about a case like this that involves LAPD, who we've got a good working relationship with, and all the players that are involved, um, it goes well above not just my pay grade or my boss's pay grade, but it goes even higher up than that. They all signed off on it. They said, yeah, you know what? you got something here. Let's run with it. When it comes to, um, you know, put it this way. There's briefings that are going to the director, Director Mueller. I've seen those emails. So he is being kept up to speed. I don't know whether it's on a weekly basis or, you know, a twice monthly basis or what have you. But 
he knows what's going on in this case because he knows what the what's at stake and what the implications are. It's just like a, a lot of other corruption cases, just as kind of a background. If I do a corruption case on, let's say you're a city council person. Um, if I open a case up on you and I investigate it, you've got to kind of keep it hush-hush because if those allegations aren't true, it's going to ruin your career. And I'm, I'm not into doing that. The FBI is not into doing that. And that's not cool when people do that. Plus, the fallback that we can get from you know, the defamation of character and ruin someone's career. I mean, there's a lot at stake. So we've got to be careful about that. So... When I decide there's stuff that I want to do or investigations or the, the techniques I want to use to investigate a case, especially like the Biggie Smalls case, I don't just decide on my own. I mean, they're my ideas and I kind of put together the operations, but that stuff has to get signed off by my bosses and it goes up high up the chain. So this idea that, um, you know, I'm some rogue agent that just decides on my own that I'm going to go off and do all that. I mean, it's crazy. It's just, it's ridiculous. You know, I'm not some conspiracy theorist. I'm not trying to, you know, I don't have like what I want the end result to be and now I'm going to try to figure out how to manufacture or come up with stuff to get me to that end point. It, you know what? You just, you investigate a case, you let the facts speak for themselves, the evidence falls out on the table and it is what it is. And it's like anything, you know, if people are afraid of what potentially the result of a case is going to be, then don't open up the case. But if you're going to open up the case and you're going to give somebody, whether it be an FBI agent or whether it be an LAPD detective or anybody, if you are going to give them the resources and the backing to look into something, then look into it. If you're afraid of what you might find, then just don't even open up the case. Because once, once the ball gets rolling, you can't unring the bell. And that's what I think caused a problem with that. When somebody understands all those other cases, and the problem was is you had, like, okay, you know, this is the bank robbery. Mm -hmm. This is the Rampart case. This is the Palmeros case. Mm -hmm. And then this is the Biggie case. So individually, you've got separate cases that people are working. Well, maybe by luck of the draw, I was the case agent of these three, and I had a good friend that did the bank robbery. And since David Mack was on the Rampart screen uh, radar, I understood all of that. If you didn't understand all that, the Biggie case would not be what it is. You just, it, you just wouldn't understand what the whole thing is. If you understand all of this stuff, the Biggie case 100% makes sense. If you don't understand all this stuff, which nobody did because nobody knew all these different parts, it doesn't give a full totality of what was going on in the Biggie case. So as I started looking at the Biggie case and I started interviewing people and I started looking into some of the stuff that LAPD had done and what they found out, that may not mean that much to them, but it's going to mean more to me because I understood what went on in these cases. Or, you know, they went ahead and they, they tried to interview these people. Well, they may not mean much to them, but I know because those people were maybe part of the Rampart case, even though we didn't get a prosecutor, which again, that's a whole other story. So, 
after looking at this stuff, after looking at the robbery homicide case, I want to see what what Perry Sanders had done on his civil case. Because again, I don't want to, I don't want to duplicate the work. At the same time, I'm not going to just take what they've done at face value. I'm going to want to see what they've done, corroborate it if I can, or prove it to be not true, whatever the case may be. Um, but it was just going to be too voluminous because I had other like prison cases and some other stuff that I was working at the same time. So Roger and Steve came on board and we went down to New Orleans on two different occasions. Um, again, kind of what gets um, put out there by Chuck Phillips is, you know, I'm meeting with these attorneys on my own and that I'm in bed with them and this and that. Well, he doesn't mention that, first of all, my bosses 100% not only have to sign off on that to pay for my travel, but LAPD has to sign off on Roger and Steve to travel with me, and my bosses pay for their travel. So to think that, that I'm doing this stuff on my own, again, it's just crazy. So we do a couple trips down to New Orleans, meet with Perry, go, go through his entire case file. And just because I wanted to get... I want to get as much information as I could from everybody, from every angle, and then I could be the person, since I have a spoke in all this stuff, to see kind of what makes sense and, and all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> and so that's what I did. And obviously, since Roger and Steve worked underneath Mike Burko at the, um, what was his department called? Professional Standards Bureau, I think it was. Um, and this, this again goes to, if for Burko to say that he didn't know or he had nothing to do with it. When we worked, just as a little backdrop, when we worked the Paul Merrill's case, Roger and Steve worked that full time with me. But they had to give like these daily reports to Burko to let him know that what they're actually doing and that they're not like riding a bike down at the beach, looking at girls in bikinis and stuff. I mean, they, they had to show him, like, yeah, this is actually what we're doing. Because 99% of the time, they're with me, or they're at the FBI office, or they're doing stuff with me, um, interviews, what have you. So he would always get these reports from Roger and Steve. Well, it's the same thing when you're working the Biggie case, or when you're traveling to New Orleans on two different trips... He, they have to let him know what they're doing as well as I'm giving him briefs because I need to convince him, hey, I need these guys to keep working with me. So again, that's just another another nail in the coffin for Burko just being a flat-out liar. I just, I don't get it. Um, so anyways, um, so we did that. Again, we met with Dennis Chang here in L.A. So I'm gathering all this information. And so then I come up with I write out these, these communications to my bosses saying, this is the stuff that I found out. These are the investigative leads that I feel that need to be done. And this is why I need Roger and Steve. And then eventually I got Jerry Jager, who was a new agent on our squad. Um, because a lot of this stuff was going to not only take away a lot of my time from working my other cases, but it involved some travel, um, and it's just, again, because this is such a high-profile case, um, when Chuck, that's why when, when Chuck Phillips was, was constantly, I mean, all the time, calling me, trying to get a hold of me, 
wanting to know what's going on. We can't let this stuff out there because who's to say whatever evidence I'm able to um, to discover, it, it may clear LAP. It may clear all these people. And, and, and the last thing I'm ever going to want to do is ruin somebody's career or point the finger at somebody when when they're they're cleared of everything. So that's one of the things I the few the couple times that I would actually tell Chuck, look, you know I can't talk about this. So why do you keep calling me five or ten times a day when you know I can't do anything? Well he was getting frustrated. And at that time I didn't know what was going on between him and some of these other people including the city attorney's office, which when I tell you what they did, you won't even believe it. So, that's how, that's, then we started just kind of running with the case and, and just doing the leads, and then it got to a point where when I'm, when I'm briefing Burko, <clears throat> I'm meeting with robbery homicide people, um, I'm, 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 I'm briefing the higher-ups on, on what we're doing, why we're doing it, why we're not doing certain stuff, they start realizing, holy shit, there's, they're, they're onto something here. So, you know, some wannabe crackpot coming in and saying, oh, it's just a, uh, it's just a rehash of Russell Poole. Oh, he did just what Russell Poole did, and he came into the game late. No, it's us that come into the game late that make a difference sometimes because we have a little bit of objectivity. And Phil Carson had a lot of objectivity coming into the Biggie case because he wasn't immediately influenced by anybody that was around him. And I think that scares some people that are directly involved with things. I think it scares them that this guy, Phil Carson, he's a little bit of a loose cannon in the sense that they didn't have any immediate control over him. He wasn't around during the late nineties to where people could have influenced him one way or another. He, he has kept a professional distance of that. His focus was a lot more on the LAPD. It wasn't really so much on the biggie killing itself, but on the LAPD and what role the city of Los Angeles may have had in all of that. So yeah, there's, there's a lot there uh, as far as Phil Carson goes. The sad part about it is there's people that are like Don Sikorsky who are sitting on it for money. They're sitting on the information that Phil Carson has and what Phil Carson knows and the details of what Phil Carson knows to grind a dime out of a television special. Let's just put it out there. Randall Sullivan didn't. He wrote a book. Okay. He did an interview, wrote a book. That's what he did. These other guys, the guys that have Phil Carson tied up, you should be pissed off about that. As a fan, as a Tupac fan, as a Vicky fan, as somebody involved in the investigation, because I know I'm pissed off. I don't like the idea that somebody is actually holding on to information or holding on to investigative leads or bombshells or things that they might be doing because they're looking to shop a television deal out of it and make the most money they can off the information. Okay. I'm not sure that that's what Phil Carson's agenda is here. I don't think it is. Uh, I think that Phil Carson got tied up with some people that wanted to monetize what he had to offer. And of course, you know, if he wrote a book or did something else, there's other ways he can monetize what his information is. Clearly there's other things he could do, but they kept him tied up. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't have a lot of, uh, and they, they, you know, the feelings mutual. They think I'm some crackpot lunatic theorist. They listen to Sergio Robledo, who was the, uh, he's a captain or he was high and muckety muck up in the LAPD that was Russ Poole's, uh, supervisor for a number of years. And like Russ Poole, uh, you know, this guy, you know, he's dead now and fuck him. I don't care. But, uh, you know, he uh, he, you know, accused us of corrupting Russ Poole in his last days and taking Russ Poole off the Suge Knight theory and putting him onto other things like that. 
you know, fuck him. I mean, I just got to the point where uh, this guy, you know, he was poisoning a lot of people's minds. So, you know, and, and kudos to Randall Sullivan for seeing through all of it and having some really very nice and and, and uh, appropriate things to say about me and, and, and the things that I was been doing with the investigation for all this time. But it was Sergio Robledo. It's this 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 idiot who was kind of poisoning the well with um, with uh, with the Don uh, with uh, this guy and with uh, others tried to poison Russell, didn't get a chance to do that. But he's the run telling other people. And that's part of the reason why I was never involved, even though I knew Russell in his last days. I was never involved in City of Lies. I was never consulted on it. I was never interviewed about it. I was never asked to be a part of it. And it makes me sad because they completely mischaracterized because they didn't know they completely mischaracterized last pool, Russ Poole's last days. They did almost the same thing that Murder Rap guys did with that series, that abomination, where they classified... Russ Poole is a guy having all of these charts up and all the, the yarn between all the points and putting them all together like that. And that he was all completely immersed in all that. And, and anybody that knew Russ Poole, that, that was so not what Russ Poole was doing. Russ Poole was turning down interviews. He wasn't a desperate guy. He wasn't a guy who was running around looking for the next lead. And he was obsessed with Biggie and Tupac. And I think, and I, and I will say this because I'll say it to Don Sikorsky. I'll say it to uh, the fellow that directed the Lincoln lawyer guy that directed city of lies. You guys fucked that up. You guys messed that up big time. You should be ashamed of yourself because you painted Russell Poole out to be an obsessive. And that is not what Russell Poole was. It was nowhere close to what Russell Poole was. And y'all ought to be fucking ashamed of yourself for putting him out that way. For people who say that they knew Russell Poole, you know what? You guys fucked up big time because you totally mischaracterized Russell Poole. I'll take that to the grave. So let the talk begin. Let the... Uh, conjecture begin and I'd love to hear more from you but for now that's what I know what I know Martin Productions production copyright 2019 we'll see you next week